I invite you to take your copy of the scripture and follow along with me as I read from Matthew chapter 9, starting with verse 14. You can find this on page 862 in the Bibles under the chairs in front of you. Then John's disciples came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will, be, they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth, because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh, fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm glad you're here together this morning to um, consider God's word to us. My name's Kevin. I get to be a pastor here at Cornerstone. I said last week as we were working our way through Matthew, this previous section of, uh, of Matthew's gospel, that that was a, the kind of passage you, you just don't want to screw up. Uh, as, a, as a pastor, like it's, it's such a rich and beautiful passage. It's the kind you would pick uh, all the time. Uh, and uh, this passage is probably one that I would never pick unless we were actually just kind of walking our way through the Scripture, unless we had that kind of conviction that this, like we need all of Scripture to be uh, speaking to us. And so my hope uh, this morning is it's uh, maybe a little bit more difficult to understand at first glance than the previous passage, but uh, I do believe the Lord has something in here for us. So I'd encourage you to have a copy of the Scripture open. We're going to refer to, we're just going to walk through this passage and uh, kind of almost line by line, and then refer to a few other uh, passages in Scripture, too, to hopefully uh, understand, grow in our understanding, but also um, to, to, to hear a word from the Lord and to hear Him calling us to turn our hearts towards Him once again. That's always God's heart for us in the Scripture, is that our hearts would be turned towards Him, that, we would, uh, that our hearts would be warmed with an experience of His love and His grace and His mercy towards us, His presence with us, that we would walk in obedience to him, in alignment with his will for us. Jesus, uh, and it's, it's helpful too to understand the, uh, the structure a little bit of Matthew's gospel. I've gone over this a number of times throughout the week, but I'm going to do that just really briefly again, because it really is instructive for us as to what this passage is saying, because it's, it's part of a context. See, Matthew was a follower of Jesus. He was one of his disciples. He walked with Jesus for about three years, kind of day in, day out, learning from him, following him, listening to his teaching, observing his life and his miracles, and recording it for us. But at the end of Jesus' life, as Jesus ascended back to heaven, Matthew writes down this gospel. He doesn't kind of do so haphazardly, like in a willy-nilly fashion, and say, like, he's doing it very methodically, and he has a structure to it. He's trying to accomplish something in the way in which he's, uh, he's, he's not just randomly putting together these memories of Jesus' life. He's, he's trying to instruct us in something. So as a, there's a, a bit of a summary statement in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, 
where uh, Jesus is in, uh, in Galilee, uh, the region in the north of Israel. And Jesus, is, he, Matthew writes this summary statement, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So Jesus, he's, he says, as Jesus was going around Galilee, he was teaching, he was preaching, and he was healing. Well, then, immediately after, chapter 5 through 7, we see this teaching and preaching ministry of Jesus. We call this the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest sermon, uh, uh, single uh, section of teaching and preaching that we have from Jesus um, in any of the Gospels. And so that's Matthew 5 through 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount. We went through that uh, a while ago. And then, uh, as, as the Sermon on the Mount ends at the end of chapter 7, people are amazed the crowds were amazed because he was teaching like one who had authority, not like the scribes, not like the other religious leaders that they were used to. He taught with authority. And now in chapters 8 and 9, we see, remember that summary statement? He was teaching and preaching and healing. Now we see in chapters 8 and 9, this healing ministry of Jesus and the purpose behind it. That there is, Jesus' healing ministry was to demonstrate that he did, in fact, have the authority to teach and to preach the way in which he did. And, there, the, and chapters 8 and 9 are actually uh, structured in a very uh, particular way as well. There's three healings. Matthew chapter 8 starts with three healings, three miraculous acts of Jesus, followed by a, a, an interlude where Jesus talks about what it means to follow him as a disciple of him. There's the healing of a leper, there was the healing of a, a centurion's servant, and then there was healing in Capernaum as he healed Peter's mother-in-law. And then there's this talk about discipleship. These people say, oh, we're going to follow you, and he's like, foxes have dens, etc., right? Birds of the sky have no nest, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then there's three more miracles. So three miracles, talking about discipleship. Now three more miracles. The winds and the waves, he calms the storm. And they're like, whoa, what kind of a person is this that they can even calm the storms? And then he drives out demons in, uh, in the region of the Gadareans. And then uh, he uh, heals a paralyzed man who is layered, lowered through the roof. That's the beginning of chapter 9. So three more miracles. Remember that miracle, Jesus, the, the, the guy's lowered in front of him, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders are like, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus says, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you would know that I actually have authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. He's backing up his teaching and his preaching that he has the authority to forgive sins, that he can say, your sins are forgiven, that he does have the authority, like in the Sermon on the Mount, that he's the judge of heaven and the earth. He's going to decide who's in the kingdom and who's not. That's a lot of authority to claim. And he says, so that you would know that I, in fact, do have that authority, get up and walk. So that's the third, the second set of three miracles. And then there's a talk about discipleship again. What does it mean to follow after Jesus? So last week we saw how he calls Matthew, the tax collector, and then Matthew throws a party with all his sinner friends. Uh, Jesus is the honored guest, and there's a conversation with Pharisees, religious leaders again, about why are you eating with Sinners, how could you do that? This 
passage is a continuation of this interlude uh, in between the, uh, the, the three miracles, uh, talking about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, it means, like we saw last week, to get up, to leave everything behind, and, be, and begin to follow him. That Matthew, unlike that rich young ruler, who also is very wealthy, who also was invited by Jesus to follow him, to become a disciple, but who went away sad because he had much wealth, wasn't willing to leave everything behind, wasn't willing to take the hand off the table, he, uh, uh, Matthew leaves it all behind, begins to follow Jesus, he, Matthew invites his friends, other sinners, other sinful people to follow him. That's what disciples do. Disciples of Jesus invite others because we've experienced new life and new joy and profound forgiveness and, and, and freedom. And so we invite others to follow him. And so this passage is a continuation of that, of what does it mean? What does discipleship to Jesus look like? So that's why this, the structure is really important to understand what Matthew's trying to teach us by relaying the events in this particular order. All right, so Jesus is not an establishment figure. He, uh, he was raising all kinds of questions uh, about people, by people. He wasn't fulfilling their expectations of what Messiah would be like, the Christ would be like, the, this coming savior, shepherd, king that was promised throughout the Old Testament. The, the Jewish leaders of the day and teachers of the law had this idea of what this this person would be like, and Jesus isn't fit in the mold. Jesus isn't fit in the mold of what a rabbi should be like. He's not, he's not an establishment figure. And so these disciples of John, that's not John the disciple, it's John the Baptist. So John the Baptist had disciples, people who followed him. Some of them became disciples of Jesus. Can they stopped being disciples of John because John was all about Jesus, actually, and they became disciples of of Jesus, some disciples of John come and they ask, why do we fast and why do the Pharisees fast, but why don't your disciples fast? Well, that's a great question. Why, why do they fast? Why did disciples of John fast? Why did the Pharisees fast? Well, in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures, we, we call the Hebrew Scriptures the Old Testament, so that's the Bible that Jesus and his contemporaries had, was what we call the Old Testament. Um, in the Hebrew Scriptures, there was one fast that God prescribed for his people. The nation of Israel, they were mandated to fast one day out of the year. It was the Day of Atonement, most holy day of the year. It was the one day of the year in which the high priest would go into the very Holy of Holies and make sacrifice, receive forgiveness of the sins for all the whole nation for the whole year. It was a day of atonement. And so the fast, that was the one fast that was prescribed and mandated for the people of Israel one day per year as an, as an act of repentance, of mourning over their sin, of humbling themselves before God. And as the story of the Old Testament unfolds, you can read all kinds of fasts that the people do. They, they fast, there's, you know, you, it's hard to almost look at a page of the Old Testament or a section and, and you don't see someone fasting for some reason. But it's important to understand that that wasn't like a commandment that they fast. God only had one commanded, mandated day of fasting, the Day of Atonement. So whether you read, you're reading about the kings or you read about Esther, remember Esther as she's about 
to save Israel through that whole plot that was against the Jewish people, she proclaims a fast with her uncle Mordecai, and and there's a day of fasting before that she would go and kind of execute their plan of saving people. Or you read about Ezra. Um, Ezra is kind of a, a, a leader who... Uh, leads God's people back out of exile to return to the promised land, to return to Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, re- reinstituting uh, the people as a nation again. And uh, you read in Ezra chapter 8 that, that they're about to prepare for their journey, and Ezra says, let's fast so that God would protect us on this journey. And then Ezra chapter 10, it says that um, Ezra humbled himself by fasting because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. So, he's, so you, you have all kinds of fasts. You read about fasts in the prophets where, where people of God are asking for God to intervene and they demonstrate that asking for God's intervention or demonstrate their humbling of themselves before God, demonstrating their repentance, de- demonstrating mourning uh, by fasting, by uh, voluntary withdrawal of food, of with, refraining from food for a period of time. But how many times were, did they have to fast? A year? Just one time, they had to fast. But again, people are naturally religious, and uh, there's always a, a competition to prove who's the most serious about their faith, who's the most religious, who's the best, who's the best at religion, who's the best Jew. And, uh, and so uh, it, it, fasting as a practice morphed into uh, a ritual that became empty of meaning and of heart, and actually became prescribed, the Pharisees prescribed, the Pharisees are kind of the religious conservatives of the day, they prescribed that if you were a real serious Jew, you had to fast twice a week, Monday and Thursday, I think. Um, and so, again, you, they only had to fast, according to God's command, one time a year. The Pharisees, though, said, God, God's standards are pretty low like let's get serious here 104 times a year right twice a week please guys let's let's be real serious you can jesus kind of illustrates that mental the mentality then that the pharisees fast so we're again we're answering the question that john's disciples asked why do the pharisees fast well jesus kind of we, we get a, a clue into jesus thinking luke chapter 18 luke chapter 18 verse 9 says this that he, Jesus, told this parable, so this didn't happen, but Jesus is telling a parable. He's telling a story to illustrate a point, and he makes his point. He says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So he's talking about people who trusted in themselves and their own righteousness. Now that's, everyone in the world is either trusting that in themselves for their own righteousness, or you're trusting in the righteousness of someone else. There's a great, reminds me of a great YouTube clip of a preacher in Cleveland named Alistair Begg, though he's from Scotland, um, and it's the, the YouTube clip, if you ser- want to search it up, uh, it's the man on the middle cross said I could come. And Alistair Begg is kind of like, the, the question is, like he's, he's talking about the thief on the cross, the guy who was crucified beside Jesus, who said, who's, who's uh, you know, before the gates of heaven, and they're like, why should you get in? Like, you're a thief, you just, like, why should you get in? And, and Alistair Begg says, the way you answer that question is, if it starts with, I did this, or I am righteous, or I did something, he's like, you have no, you have no hope. But if you say, 
He, Jesus, Jesus is righteous for me. And, and again, his answer is, the man on the middle cross said I could come. Um, we're either trusting in our own righteousness or we're trusting in the righteousness of another for us. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Right? That's what religious folk do. And so listen to this. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Again, like we said last week, tax collectors, kind of the lowest of the low, the, the scumbags of the earth uh, in the eyes of uh, religious Jews of the day. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, right? He's not even praying to God. He's praying about himself. He's praying to himself about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous adulterers, or even like this guy, this tax collector, I'm not, I don't do all those bad things. I'm not greedy. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not unrighteous. I keep my nose clean. I don't do all kinds of bad stuff. And in fact, I do a lot of good stuff. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of everything I get. Why do the Pharisees fast? To prove their own righteousness, to prove how good they are, so they could look down on other people. Which is so ironic, of course, because fasting is meant to be an act of humbling oneself. To take something that's meant to be an act of humility and use it to stoke our pride is really just the heart of what religion is about. Well, thank goodness that we're not like those arrogant religious Pharisees, am I right? We would never make a prescription over, what, over, over practices and, and, and think highly of ourselves because of these certain practices that we do and look down on those scumbags who don't practice that like we do, right? We would never be like those bad Pharisees, those bad religious folks. See how pernicious the religious spirit is, we can become prideful about our humility. It's a tendency for us all to take our, even our acts of mercy and compassion for others, become proud about them, to look down on others who don't do them, to take our acts of worship, judge those who worship differently than us, take our good theology and place those who are so mistaken on the outside become proud. And those things that we do become the thing by which we judge whether or not someone's righteous before God or not. And again, Jesus is interested in the heart of it all. Why do the Pharisees fast? Well, Jesus actually talked about that in Matthew chapter 7. Or chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 19. He says, when you, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, like the Pharisees. 
For they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. Why do they fast? To get the admiration of other people? To make it obvious? To, to Im- improve their status? This put-upon piety? This, de- this um, outward demonstration of their righteousness? so that others would take notice, so that they could look down on other people. That's why the Pharisees fast, fasted. So John's disciples say, why do the Pharisees fast? And they say, why do we fast? John the Baptist's disciples were fasting as well. Why do they fast? Well, um, what do we know about John the Baptist? John the Baptist was a relative of Jesus. Uh, Mary and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother is Elizabeth. Jesus' mother is Mary. They're cousins, so they're I guess that makes them second cousins or something like that. Um, John the Baptist um, was a forerunner, we call him a forerunner of Jesus. He was, a, a pro, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures prophesied that someone like Elijah would come to prepare the way of the Lord, to kind of clear the path for Messiah to follow in behind, and John fulfills that. He came to prepare the way, to anticipate the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus, asking, so... For Jesus to come. Well, what was his life like? Well, we know he lived out in the wilderness, in the desert, and he ate locusts and wild honey, which might be a clue as to why he fasted fairly often. Well, he's, he's fasting, though, as a, he's calling people to repentance, to turn their hearts from, from this in, inner wickedness and evil, a heart that's turned away from God. He's, he's calling for people to turn back to God and to express that through fasting, and to anticipate, to pray for coming of the Christ, the Messiah. So the Pharisees are fasting as this religious act of superiority, of pride, of put on outward, external reality that, that, that doesn't match the internal reality of their hearts, but to, um, to demonstrate just how serious they are. John's disciples are fasting because they're anticipating the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Messiah. Verse 15, back to Matthew 9, verse 15. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad, or can the wedding guests mourn, while the groom is with them? So Jesus makes this connection between fasting and mourning, or sadness, right? The, the, the reason his disciples don't fast is because why, could they, why would they be sad while the groom is with them? He says, it's not appropriate for my disciples to fast now because there's a wedding feast going on. There's a time to fast and there's a time to eat and drink. And now, as Jesus is saying, now is not the appropriate time for my disciples to fast because there's a wedding, there's a feast going on. You know, can you imagine the father of the bride... Uh, getting up at the, at the wedding reception and saying, as a demonstration of how I feel about my daughter marrying this man, we're going to fast today. No, like there's joy and feasting and celebration at a wedding. To everything there is a season, Ecclesiastes says. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. And Jesus is saying, now is a time to feast and celebrate because I'm here. I'm here. 
That's a little presumptive, right? Something maybe kids feel. Although some of you extroverts kind of act this way too. When you walk in the room, you're like, I'm here, the party's here, let's have a good time now. It's all about me, right? It's, it's a little presumptive, but Jesus is calling himself the groom, which is in the Old Testament scripture, God himself. We looked at that a few weeks ago as we talked about the church being the bride of Christ and how throughout the Old Testament scripture, God repeatedly talks about himself as the groom of his people. That his relationship is like a marriage, a covenant relationship of love. And so for Jesus to take on this title of groom is a title, is a him taking on divinity, taking on the presence of the Lord among his people. I'm here. It is a time to celebrate. But he says, verse, continuing verse 15, he says, The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they, my disciples, will fast. He says, The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they'll fast. There is coming a time, Jesus says, where I won't be right there with them, where it won't be like a time of feasting and celebration. I'm going to be taken away from them, and in that period of time, my disciples will fast. So go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Remember when Jesus says, Don't, whenever you, when you fast, he didn't say if you fast, he's talking to his disciples. He's not saying if you fast, don't do it like this. He says, when you fast, you're going to be fasting. But in verse 17, when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is telling us, teaches his disciples, there is coming a day when you will fast, when fasting will be appropriate. You see this in the book of Acts, you see the disciples of Jesus fasting again. In the, in the book of Acts. Um, not, a, not a ton, to be honest, but there is fasting. But again, ob, to follow the teaching of Jesus, it's not always obvious when you're fasting because we're doing it in private. It's doing it in secret. It's doing it it's personal with God. It's not, you're not making a big show out of it. Uh, Donald Whitney, in his book on the spiritual disciplines, lists 10 different reasons why disciples of Jesus could fast today. I'm just going to re- I'm going to list off the 10 reasons. Don't you if you're taking notes, you'll probably have to go back to the YouTube to to pick them up or you can read them in his book, Donald Whitney's book on spiritual disciplines. I forget the title. Uh, but it's this, to strengthen prayer, to seek God's guidance, to express grief or mourning, to seek deliverance and protection, to express repentance and return to God, to humble oneself before God. To express concern for the work of God, to minister to the needs of others, to overcome temptation and dedicate yourself to God, and to express love and worship to God. Ten reasons as why disciples of Jesus could fast today. Matthew 9, how does, how does Jesus boil it all down to? What does Jesus boil it all down to? He says, the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they'll fast. Why do we fast today? Again, remember Jesus connected it to mourning, sadness, right? Like, why do we fast today? Because this world isn't the way it's meant to be. 
Because the groom isn't with us. Because he hasn't returned yet. Kind of like we, we mourn in the spirit of John the Baptist's disciples who were, who, who were fasting and, and asking the Lord to send Messiah. We fast today and we mourn today because Jesus is taken from us. The kingdom of heaven is not yet fully here. Romans 14 says the kingdom of heaven is, is a righteousness and peace and joy. And we see this kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy breaking in, but it is not here fully. It's a kingdom of righteousness, but we still struggle with sin. So we mourn over sin and we, we daily repent and return to God. We ask to be delivered from the sin that entangles us so easily. It's a kingdom of peace, but we live in a, in a time of war, in, a, in, a, in an age of conflict, both interpersonal and geopolitical, and there's so much fighting and broken relationships around us. And the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of joy, but we're so often sad about all kinds of things. So loved ones die. So people get sick. There's suffering that surrounds us. There's oppression in this world and poverty and hatred and illness. We fast because we don't yet see Jesus face to face. And we want to be with him. We want him to come again. And we long for God to intervene. Why? Because this world isn't the way it's meant to be yet. And we're not the way we're meant to be yet. We long for him. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, we, we, we long to be with Christ for that is far better. Better by far. Or he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, we know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. And, and now we walk by faith and not by sight. And we're confident and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. It's challenging to walk by faith and not by sight. Because sometimes what we see feels in conflict with what we believe. But we hold on to what is true. And we walk by faith. And we're at home in our body, but we're, we're not with the Lord face to face. And we, sometimes there's longing to be with the Lord. Right now we see through a glass dimly, 1 Corinthians 13, but then face to face. 1 John chapter 3, Jesus, or the Apostle John says, you know, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. And though we're not like him, one day we will see him. And when we see him, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. We will see him face to face. When we no longer walk by faith but by sight. When we, when we no longer have to walk, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, these three remain. Faith, hope and love and the greatest of these is love when we no longer have to walk by faith but by sight when our hope is fully realized then only love remains and we are forever with Jesus and then there will be no more fasting as the great wedding feast of the lamb draws near 
There will be no fasting. There is no mourning and sadness, suffering or tears or illness in heaven. Praise God. But until then, until then we fast. And we have this ache in us. Whitney describes or defines fasting as this voluntary withdrawal of food for spiritual purposes. And again, it's most often done in private. So we don't often talk about it. Sometimes we do call congregational fasts. We long for that day, for the return of Jesus. And so we fast. Again, the, the fast that we are called to is not like the Pharisees' fast, but more in line with the fast of the disciples of John. Longing for the presence of the Christ to be among us, to see him face to face. And Jesus is saying to the disciples of John, if you're missing me, you're missing the whole point of John's fast. Don't miss me. So then Jesus uh, talks, he talks about, he gives these two analogies. No one patches an old garment with a shrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. So if you have a, if you've got, you know, your, your old blue jeans that are nice and shrunk because you've washed them a number of times, but you get a hole in them, you've got to put a patch on it. You don't put new material on it because that's not shrunk yet. So if you patch it up and you attach it to the knee of those jeans, when someone like me does the laundry, it's going to shrink, and, uh, and, and now you're going to actually make a new a hole. The, the, the materials are not compatible. If you're going to put a patch on shrunken cloth, you better use shrunken patch. Make sure they're compatible. And then there's this whole business about the wineskins. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the skins burst, wine, and wine spills out and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskin, and both are preserved. So uh, what's going on there is wineskins are leather, so animal skin that's been tanned, shaved, uh, thankfully, and, um, and, um, and new wineskins are a little more supple, have a little bit of elasticity to them, and, uh, whereas old wineskins can be brittle and a little harder. And um, so, if you put new wine that's still fermenting into uh, into a wineskin, so as it ferments, it releases carbon dioxide, I think, and it releases gases, and uh, and so the pressure will build up. And if it's a crack, old, brittle heart, uh, wine skin, it's going to crack, and the wine will all pour out and it'll be ruined, you'll lose it. And the wineskin's broken because now it's got a big hole in it. So he's saying, you gotta make sure that the wine and the skins are compatible. Make sure that if you, if you have new wine, put it in a new wineskin. If you have old wine, it's not gonna ferment anymore, you can use the old wineskin again. Make sure that they're compatible. So what he's saying, I believe, is that the current structures of the religious system, the Pharisees' religion, and the structures and practices of John's disciples, if they continue on as if Jesus was not here, are not compatible with the new revelation and the new situation that Jesus is introducing. Jesus says, I've come to bring something brand new. And Pharisees, if you're going to continue on in your self-righteous religion, that's not compatible with the situation that I'm bringing about. 
And John's disciples, if you're going to continue to fast as if the Messiah hasn't come, that's not compatible either because you're missing me. I'm bringing new, a new situation, a new revelation. You know, the Pharisees, your practices are trying to depict something that's not genuine, to hide the reality of what is in your heart. You're like, Jesus will say in another place, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look really nice on the outside, but inside there's death and cold. And the, what I'm bringing is this inside-out transformation of your heart to change your very heart at the motivational level and the level of your desires and what you love so that, yes, what's on the outside will change, but it will be motivated by love and by life and by joy. John, you're awaiting the Messiah. Well, I'm here, and I am the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament expectations and promises and structures. I've come to bring a new covenant. Hebrews says a new temple, a new, a, a, a new covenant, a new priesthood. The temple is now obsolete because I am the meeting place between God and humanity. The sacrificial system, that's all fulfilled. We don't have to kill a lamb twice a day anymore. Because the Lamb of God was killed on the cross. I've come, and it's all obsolete. Acts chapter 2, as Peter's preaching on Pentecost, he says, this is the fulfillment of what Joel said. The prophet Joel said, he prophesied the end of this tribal representative religion where it's only for the Jews. No, I'm going to pour out my spirit on everyone. Jesus said that to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jerusalem will no longer be the focal point of worship, but the Father will seek those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus here is not attacking the Old Testament. He's attacking legalism and a a reading of the Old Testament that misses him and the point, that he's the point of it all. He says, I've come to bring something new. And he continues to bring something new. And so as a people, we seek him, and we seek his presence with us to fill us with joy. And so we will go about our lives, yes, fasting and mourning, but we will do so with joy unspeakable and peace that passes understanding. Because he died to forgive us of all sins, he resurrected to give us new life, and he's ascended to the Father's right hand now to intercede for us. And from there, he will return to make all things right. To wipe away all tears. To raise up all those who have died in Christ. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And he will put an end to everything that's wrong in this world. And it will truly be a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we anticipate that day. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, give us a heart after yours. Turn our hearts towards you so that, Lord, all of our religious activities would be motivated out of love. Change us from the inside. And so even while we may fast and even while we pray and when we sing songs and where we engage in corporate worship and we come together and we, we do all kinds of practices and disciplines, Lord, may it all be out of a, love, a heart of, that's in love with you and that's seeking you. And it's seeking your kingdom and the principles of your kingdom. For we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.